You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Part 3. The Crypto Financial System Let's step back a bit and abstract from what we've discussed so far. Crypto is, one, a set of tokens which are worth fluctuating amounts of money. We can say that these tokens are financial assets, like stocks and bonds. Two, a novel set of ways to create new tokens and distribute them and try to make them worth money. Three, a novel way of holding financial assets. Instead of the databases that people use to hold stocks and bonds, you can own your own crypto on the blockchain. Four, a novel way to write contracts and computer programs. Computer programs that are contracts and contracts that are computer programs. If you read only that description, you might object. Yes, fine, but what is crypto for? What do these tokens do? Why are they worth money? Nothing in that description answers those objections. I suppose the last one does, in a sense. Crypto tokens are for building smart contracts for trading crypto tokens. But it's not a very good answer, because it's entirely self-referential. Yes, fine, but why are you trading the tokens in the first place? And you might have another complaint. Classically, a financial asset means a contractual claim on the cash flows of some person or entity— a share of stock represents a claim on the profits of a company. A bond represents a claim on repayment from a company or government, etc. My financial asset represents a liability or equity issuance of somebody else. Each financial asset has both an owner and an obliger. Some crypto, I would argue, looks a lot like that. It's an equity claim on the value of some crypto-y business. But a lot of crypto is consciously not like that. Bitcoin is digital gold. It's specifically not a financial asset. Owning a Bitcoin doesn't represent a claim on anyone else. A Bitcoin exists as an independent thing that you can own, not a contractual relationship between parties like stock or a bond. In the text, I use financial asset in the extremely loose sense of, like, a thing with a fluctuating price that you can see on your computer screen and that hedge funds can trade. But cryptocurrencies aren't technically financial assets. Or not always, anyway. 
but for now, I want to set such objections to the side. If you're a certain sort of financial person, a financial engineer, an arbitrager, a market structure enthusiast, a builder of high-frequency trading systems, this abstract set of facts is incredibly, incredibly beautiful. You wake up one day, and there's just a whole other financial system. It's full of smart people building interesting things, and it's full of idiots making terrible mistakes. People have built brilliant new ways to make financial bets that you can use, and they've built insane new ways to make financial bets that you can exploit. How can you not want to join in? It's so interesting, so intellectually appealing, such a blank canvas for all of your aesthetic views about how markets should work. Also, so many idiots are getting rich, why shouldn't you? There are other appealing properties when you compare this system to traditional finance. The crypto system is, philosophically, one of permissionless innovation. The workings of the major blockchains are public and open source. If you want to build a derivatives exchange or margin lending protocol or whatever in Ethereum, you just do it. You don't need to set up a meeting with Vitalik Buterin to get his approval. You don't need to negotiate access and fees with the Ethereum Corp. There is no Ethereum Corp. Anyone can try anything and see if it works. If you're a smart young person coming from traditional finance, this feels liberating. If you're used to spending months negotiating credit agreements with prime brokers and setting up direct access to trade on a stock exchange, the idea that you can just do stuff in crypto with no preliminaries is amazing. Obviously, it's a bit alarming as well. Some of those long, slow processes in traditional finance are there to prevent money laundering or fraud or ill-considered risk-taking. But empirically, a lot of them aren't really preventing any of those things and aren't doing so in an optimal way. A lot of them are just how it's always been done. Nothing in crypto is how it's always been done. It's all too new. And so people invented a financial system for crypto. It runs alongside the traditional financial system, though they touch at many points. In some ways, it looks a lot like a copy of the traditional financial system. In other ways, it looks totally different. In some ways, it's a streamlined and modernized and innovative evolution of the traditional system. In other ways, it's a chaotic and stupid devolution of the traditional system, a version of traditional finance, TradFi, as crypto people call it, that unlearned important historic lessons about fraud and leverage and risk and regulation. It's so fun. Let's talk about it. A. Your keys, your coins, your hard drive in a garbage dump. 1. Holding crypto. Maybe the first thing to say about the crypto financial system is that the traditional financial system is deeply intermediated and the crypto system is not. If you have money, your bank tracks your money for you. If you have stock, your broker tracks your stock for you, etc. One dumb, simple thing that this means if you have money in the bank, your bank has to give it to you. If you forget the PIN code for your ATM card, or if you forget the password for your online banking, you'll have a hard time taking out money, and that will be inconvenient for you. But the bank owes you the money. They can't just be like, aha, got you, the money is ours now. There's some process by which you can go into the bank and prove that you are who you say you are, and they're like, Fine, we'll reset your password. It's test1234. Don't forget this time. Crypto doesn't necessarily work like that. 
Owning Bitcoin means, one, having a public Bitcoin address with some Bitcoin in it, and two, possessing the private key to that address. If you have the public address private key pair, then you own the Bitcoin. You can transfer them to someone else on the blockchain. If you don't have that pair, then you can't. If you lose your private key or lose track of your public address, there's no one to recover your password for you or give you back your Bitcoin. They're just gone. There are ways to, you know, not lose your keys. Mainly people use software wallets, which generate and keep track of their addresses and private keys and allow them to sign transactions and send and receive crypto online. The wallets may be desktop or phone apps or extensions on a browser. Most modern wallets require you to keep track not of private keys, but rather a seed phrase of typically 12 random-looking words. Maybe army truth speak average and so on. The phrase can be used as a seed to generate lots of public-private key pairs, so the wallet can create lots of different addresses that can all be recovered from a single seed phrase. People often speak of wallets holding crypto, but really what they have are these keys for various addresses. The crypto is only ever on the blockchain. Then you write the seed phrase down on a piece of paper, which is easier to write than a long random number. But this is a developing technology, and there's a long history of people losing, forgetting, or throwing away their private keys or seed phrases. A guy in Wales named James Howells periodically pops up in the news because he threw away a hard drive with the private key for 8,000 Bitcoin. He's pretty sure he knows the garbage dump that has his hard drive, and for years he's been waging a campaign to dig up the dump and sift through the garbage. If he finds the hard drive and if it still works, then he'll have Bitcoin worth about $150 million, which he can use to pay all the garbage diggers. In one sense, it would be much, much better to have a financial system in which the bank could reset his password and give him back the 8,000 Bitcoin instead of digging up a garbage dump. In another sense, this is an extremely funny financial system, and there's a charm to that. Two, not holding crypto. If you're a portfolio manager at an institutional investor and you want to buy Bitcoin and you go to your compliance and operations people and say, I want to buy Bitcoin and I will write our private keys down on a post-it that I will keep next to my computer, they will say no. If you propose better security measures, they might still say no. This stuff is too new, too scary. If you say, Megabank Custody Services will hold our Bitcoin for us and we'll just have a book entry on their ledger saying we have Bitcoin, then compliance might be a bit more comfortable, but that requires Megabank to offer that service. But what if you go to your compliance and say, I'm just going to enter into a bet with a hedge fund on the price of Bitcoin. For every dollar that Bitcoin goes up, the hedge fund will pay us $5. For every dollar that it goes down, we'll pay them $5 then you don't have to own crypto at all. All you have is an over-the-counter derivative with a hedge fund. Compliance knows what that is. That's an understandable thing. There are no weird custody issues there because there's nothing to keep custody of. There are no weird coins to worry about, just a contract with a hedge fund to pay you money. You can write contracts on the price of corn, on interest rates, and on hurricane damage, so why not Bitcoin? 
You do due diligence on the hedge fund, you get comfortable with the credit and collateral terms, and then you sign the contract. And then, economically, you own some Bitcoin. Your investment goes up when Bitcoin goes up and down when Bitcoin goes down without the worries of really owning Bitcoin. No keys to lose. And so, in traditional finance, there's a big business offering those instruments. CME Group Inc. offers Bitcoin futures, which are basically the bet that I outlined above. You pay me $5 for every dollar the Bitcoin goes up, and I pay you $5 for every dollar it goes down. It's a trusted, centralized, traditional finance way to bet on the price movements of Bitcoin. Still, not everyone can buy futures, which require a lot of money and aren't offered by some retail brokerages. In the U.S. financial system, pretty much the easiest thing to invest in is stocks. So wrapping Bitcoin in a stock would increase its appeal. The easiest way to do this would be a cash Bitcoin exchange-traded fund, a pot of money that trades like a stock on a stock exchange and invests the money in Bitcoin. People keep trying to do this, but the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission remains skeptical and hasn't approved cash Bitcoin ETFs, though they exist in some other countries. The U.S. has, however, approved Bitcoin futures ETFs, which invest in Bitcoin through futures contracts. Two layers of abstraction, a Bitcoin wrapped in a futures contract, wrapped in a stock, and delivered to your brokerage account. B. CFI. 1. Fiat on-ramps. Okay, I said one way to own a Bitcoin is to write your private key on a post-it note. But where did you get that Bitcoin? In the early days of Bitcoin, a reasonably plausible answer would be, I mined it. Every Bitcoin ever created has come from mining, and early Bitcoin was in part a hobbyist mining operation. In modern crypto, you're not going to get very far just by mining crypto on your home computer. The main way people in most of the world get into crypto is that they exchange dollars, or euros, pounds, yuan, etc., what crypto people call fiat, for crypto. And how they do that is a tricky question. One simple way is for you to find someone with crypto and say, hey, can I buy some of your crypto? They say, sure, and you arrange a deal. In researching this article, I set up an Ethereum wallet and texted a friend to ask if he had any Ether I could buy. He replied, sure, and I said, send me $20 worth, and gave him my public address. He sent me $20 of Ether, and then he texted me to say, done. Venmo me $20. I did, and our transaction was complete. He sent me the ether before I sent him the dollars, so he took some credit risk, and in fact I was away from my phone when he sent it, so he ended up taking my credit risk for several hours. When I did get his text, I briefly considered that it would be very funny if, as part of my research for this article, I stole $20 of ether from him. But that seemed mean. Just so you know, Bloomberg's Code of Journalistic Ethics forbids journalists who write about crypto, including me, from owning more than a nominal amount of crypto for research purposes. This rule itself is arguably biasing. It forbids crypto enthusiasts from writing about crypto. But never mind. In researching this article, I bought $20 of Ether from a friend by Venmo and $100 of Ether from Coinbase. This also led to Coinbase giving me, like, $5 of free Bitcoin as a new account bonus. In seeking permission to do this, I told my bosses that, one, 
I planned to lose all my money, but two, if I accidentally made any profit, I would donate it. I did spend like $8 of ether on the MatthewLevine.eth domain. I'm not going to lie. This was fun to do and fun to write about. It felt sillier and more exciting than my automatic monthly Vanguard investments. But it's not a good way to run a financial system. Incidentally, the day after I did that trade, I met with the team behind a decentralized finance protocol and was like, well, how would you quickly turn dollars into Ether in New York? And they had no great answers and were like, we're working on it. And I was like, well, I texted a friend for Ether and then Venmoed him the money. And they were like, yeah, that's probably what we would do. In general, if you get a text asking you to send crypto to a string of letters and numbers, you should throw your phone into the ocean. Instead, the main way that normal people buy crypto is through crypto exchanges, specifically centralized crypto exchanges. Crypto exchanges are companies. Coinbase, Gemini, Binance, FTX, Kraken, and Bitfinex are some big ones that accept regular money for crypto. You wire an exchange $100, and it gives you $100 worth of Bitcoin, perhaps minus a fee. In the olden days, the stereotype was that a lot of crypto exchanges were run by criminals or incompetent teenagers, or incompetent teenage criminals. The standard crypto exchange transaction was, one, you exchange your dollars for Bitcoin to buy heroin, and then two, the exchange got hacked and lost your Bitcoin before you could even buy the heroin. Modern crypto exchanges are less like that. For one thing, they're more careful and technically adept, so they're less likely to lose your Bitcoin. For another thing, though, they're big companies. Regulators are aware of them, and they try to be good corporate citizens. In their role as on-ramps and off-ramps between traditional currencies and crypto, they do the same sorts of anti-money laundering and know-your-customer checks that traditional banks and brokerages do. If you show up at Coinbase, a U.S. public company, with a sack of dollar bills that you got from dealing heroin and try to convert them into Bitcoin, Coinbase will turn you away and probably report you to the police. The centralized exchanges are very much part of the regulated financial system these days. The days of crypto being a zone of utter lawlessness are mostly gone. This is a series of trade-offs. Roughly speaking, the crypto exchanges of the olden days let you trade dollars for Bitcoin without asking any questions, but they might steal your Bitcoin. When the exchanges were unregulated and crime positive, the odds of them doing crime to you, or having crime done to them, were pretty high. The modern crypto exchanges ask a lot of questions and make it difficult for you to move tons of money in secret, but they probably won't steal your Bitcoin. 2. Custodians So you've opened an account at an exchange and sent the exchange $100 to buy $100 worth of Bitcoin. What does the exchange give you for your $100? One possibility, it gives you .005215 Bitcoin. It sends you some instructions on how to set up a Bitcoin wallet. It asks you for a public Bitcoin address. It converts $100 to Bitcoin at the current market price and it sends you that number of Bitcoin at your public address. And then you access those Bitcoin using your private key for that address. This is suboptimal for the exchange. For one thing, dollar and Bitcoin transactions have different time frames and finality. If you fund your account with a bank transfer or a credit card, and then you buy $100 of Bitcoin, and then you call your bank and say, 
I've been defrauded. I don't recognize that charge. There's a decent chance the bank will take the $100 from the exchange and give it back to you. Meanwhile, the Bitcoin transfer to your wallet is fast and irreversible. For another thing, you know the exchange will get some customers who don't write down their wallet's seed phrase, or lose it or forget it, and then can't access the Bitcoin. And they'll call the exchange's customer service number and say, I lost the password to my Bitcoin account. Can you reset it? And the exchange will say, no, it doesn't work that way. Also, we don't have a customer service number. And the customers won't like it. I paid you $100 for Bitcoin and I don't have the Bitcoin, they'll say, and blame the exchange and complain to regulators and law enforcement and the press, and especially to their bank or credit card company. Now, these problems are annoying but solvable, and modern crypto exchanges do some amount of this, acquiring crypto for self-custodying customers. But there's a simpler possibility that is also quite popular. The exchange could hang on to your Bitcoin for you. Instead of sending you 0.005215 Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain, it could go out and buy 0.005215 Bitcoin and put them into its own Bitcoin wallet. Being a professional Bitcoin exchange, it could put in the effort to keep these Bitcoins safe and not lose the keys. And then instead of sending you 0.005215 Bitcoin, the exchange just keeps a database of its customers and their account balances. And your entry in the database includes your name, your driver's license number, your account number, your email address, your phone number, your password, just kidding, a hash of your password, your mother's maiden name and your account balance, and the exchange writes 0.005215 in the balance field. And then when you log into your account, it displays 0.005215 Bitcoin as your account balance, and you think you own 0.005215 Bitcoin. And you're not exactly wrong, but really what you own is a claim on the exchange for 0.005215 Bitcoin. You don't own them directly, and you don't control the private key. You just have an entry on the ledger of the exchange. You know, like a bank. If you have a bank account, the bank owes you money, and you trust it to keep a record of that. If you have a crypto exchange account, it's the same, but the exchange owes you Bitcoin. One thing this means is that if you lose your password, you can call the exchange and it can reset it for you. The customer service can be a bit better. There are some obvious downsides. One big one, it's like a bank. If you got into Bitcoin because you don't trust banks and you want to be in control of your own money, it's somewhat weird philosophically to just go and trust a crypto exchange to keep your money for you. These days, the big crypto exchanges seem to be mostly law-abiding, and you can get rich enough running a legitimate crypto exchange that it seems silly to steal the money instead. But another downside is hackers. A crypto exchange has a giant pot of money, and it has to move that money around a lot to deal with customer transactions. It's an appealing target for hackers looking to steal private keys. Again, Modern crypto exchanges spend a lot of money on information security, but that wasn't always the case, and there's a long history of Bitcoin exchanges being hacked. Or quote-unquote hacked. When all the Bitcoin in an exchange's wallet gets stolen, it can be hard to tell sometimes whether they were stolen by outside hackers or by the exchange's CEO. Also, while I suppose an exchange is less likely to lose its private keys than the average customer is, it can happen. In 2018, the CEO of Quadriga Fintech Solutions Corp. died in somewhat mysterious circumstances while on vacation in India. 
at the time, the company's Quadriga CX was Canada's largest crypto exchange, and it was apparently run entirely off of its CEO's laptop. When he died, he took all of Quadriga's private keys with him, meaning its customers' Bitcoin were lost forever. Or that's what it would have meant, except that before he died, he also stole all the customers' Bitcoin, so the wallets whose keys disappeared with him were empty anyway. When crypto exchanges are bad, they tend to be bad in all ways at once. 3. Also exchanges, though. Centralized crypto exchanges are on-ramps to crypto for people with dollars and other traditional currencies, but they're also exchanges. If you have some Bitcoin in your Coinbase account and you'd rather have Ether, you can sell your Bitcoin for Ether. If you want to actively trade among cryptocurrencies to make bets on which will go up more, you can do that on an exchange. In traditional finance, there tends to be a division between exchanges and brokerages. If you want to buy stock, you open an account at a brokerage, such as Charles Schwab, Fidelity, or Robinhood, and you send your broker an order to buy stock. The stock exchange is a place for big brokerages and institutions to trade stock. Retail customers need an account with a broker to access the exchange. In practice, modern U.S. stock trading is even more intermediated than this, and your order may get sent to an electronic trading firm and not the stock exchange. There are many layers of intermediation. In crypto, that's not generally true. Big crypto exchanges such as Coinbase or FTX let anyone open an account and trade crypto directly on the exchange, and you wouldn't normally connect to the exchange through a broker. Though traditional retail stock brokerages are increasingly getting into the business of buying crypto for their customers. Every step that goes into making a trade happen, getting your money into the account, taking your buy order, matching your order with someone else's sell order, settling the trade, putting the crypto in your account, keeping track of your account, is done by the exchange. Let me spend a bit more time on one of those functions, providing leverage. If Bitcoin isn't exciting enough for you, you can find an exchange that will let you borrow money to buy more of it. You put in $100, the exchange lends you $900, you get $1,000 worth of Bitcoin. If Bitcoin goes up 10%, you double your money. If Bitcoin goes down 10%, you lose everything. Bitcoin goes up and down by 10% a lot, so this is an exciting way to gamble. Traditional finance also provides leverage, but it's a complex and intermediated system involving brokers and clearinghouses. Crypto exchanges are more integrated, so in many cases a crypto exchange is basically in the business of managing market risk. Say instead of Bitcoin going down 10%, it falls 15%. You're not only down your original $100, but now you owe $50. Crypto exchanges have to decide when to make you post-collateral, put up more money, to ensure that you're good for your losses, and when to liquidate your position so you don't lose more than you can pay back. A crypto exchange may have customers with big leveraged bets on Bitcoin rising. They're long in the language of finance. And customers with big leveraged bets against Bitcoin. They're short. If Bitcoin moves too far in one direction too quickly, then the long or short customers will be out of money, which means there won't be money to pay back the short or long customers on the other side. The exchange has to think about how volatile its assets are, set leverage limits so blowups are unlikely, and monitor leverage levels to ensure no one is in imminent danger of blowing up. If someone is likely to blow up, the exchange has to seize their collateral and sell it, ideally in an intelligent way that doesn't destabilize the market too much. 
and in periods of high volatility, the exchange might shut down trading rather than deal with all this. That's a lot of centralized decision-making. C. Stablecoins Bitcoin is good at keeping track of who has Bitcoin. This is technologically interesting and also useful insofar as Bitcoin are a store of wealth. And if Bitcoin were the dominant currency in the world, if it were digital cash and you could use it to buy stuff and the prices of things were set in Bitcoin, then it would be even more useful. But it isn't. You use dollars or pounds or yen or euros to buy stuff, and the price of Bitcoin in dollars, etc., is very volatile. One thing that would be cool is if crypto could keep track of who has dollars. Then you could get the benefits of crypto, decentralization, smart contracts, skirting the law, along with the benefits of dollars. Your bank account isn't incredibly volatile. You can buy a sandwich. A stablecoin is a crypto token that's supposed to always be worth $1, or one unit of some other traditional currency, though I'll stick to dollars. If you have a stablecoin, then you have $1 on the blockchain. You hope. 1. Collateralized The simplest sort of stablecoin is what's sometimes called a fully-backed stablecoin. Popular examples include USDC and Tether. The idea here is, 1. Some reasonably trustworthy institution sets up a stablecoin factory to issue stablecoins on one or more popular blockchains. 2. You give the issuer $1. 3. It gives you back one stablecoin. 4. It puts the dollar somewhere safe. 5. If you ever want your dollar back, you give the issuer one stablecoin and it gives you back the dollar. Or maybe not you, but an institutional investor. This description makes a stablecoin issuer an on-off ramp between regular currency and crypto, which is risky for the reasons we discussed earlier, regulatory, credit, etc., if you want to hand the issuer a stablecoin and get back a dollar, it will probably at least want to do know-your-customer checks to make sure it's okay to give you dollars. Or the issuer might limit redemptions to some list of large institutional investors, rather than letting just anyone show up with a stablecoin. This is probably fine. If there are enough institutions who can redeem stablecoins for dollars, then they will buy stablecoins for around a dollar, and you can just sell your stablecoins to them. Your stablecoin lives on some blockchain and can be traded and used like any other token on that blockchain. Most of the big stablecoin issuers issue on multiple blockchains. Tether lives mostly on Tron and Ethereum. USDC lives mostly on Ethereum, but is also on Solana, Tron, Avalanche, and to a lesser extent, four other blockchains. If you have $10,000 stablecoins on the Ethereum blockchain and you want to buy some Ether, you can buy $10,000 worth of Ether with your stablecoins without putting more dollars in. And if you have $10,000 worth of Ether, you can sell it for $10,000 stablecoins. Having $10,000 stablecoins is like having $10,000, but the stablecoins live on the blockchain, in your crypto wallet, rather than in a bank account. This is useful if, for instance, you don't have a bank account, or if you don't live in the U.S. and it's hard for you to set up a dollar-denominated bank account, or if you plan to use the $10,000 to buy more crypto later and you don't want to move it back and forth between the regular and crypto financial systems, or if you want to send the $10,000 to a smart contract which can deal directly with your crypto wallet but which has a hard time talking to a bank. 
Banks are suspicious of crypto, and crypto is suspicious of banks, so it's always a bit painful to connect the crypto system to a bank. This smart contract will send me dollars if the Jets win this weekend. No, bad, doesn't work. This smart contract will send me stablecoins if the Jets win. Yes, fine. Stablecoins are wrapped dollars, dollars that live on the blockchain. More generally, this is useful if you think the crypto financial system is better than the traditional one. If sending tokens over a crypto blockchain is faster and cheaper than sending dollars by interbank transfer, then stablecoins are a better way to send dollars. If the blockchain lets you develop interesting derivatives contracts and trading applications in a quick and permissionless way, and the traditional financial system doesn't, you'll want to use stablecoins instead of regular old dollars. One important point about the collateralized stablecoin model is that it requires you to trust the issuer. The dollarness of the stablecoin happens, as it were, entirely off the blockchain. As a crypto matter, what you have is a receipt for $1 from some institution that you trust. If that institution incinerates all the dollars, that receipt shouldn't be worth a dollar. One of the longest-running and funniest controversies in crypto is about where Tether, the biggest stablecoin, keeps its money. Tether is replete with colorful characters, the Mighty Ducks guy, etc., and they go around boasting about how transparent they are without actually saying where the money is. They also go around promising to publish an audit, but never do it. They probably have the money, more or less, but they seem to be going out of their way to seem untrustworthy. Still, people trust them. 1. You can collateralize other things. The collateralized stablecoin model is a way to wrap non-crypto assets and put them on the blockchain. You could imagine all sorts of assets getting wrapped. For instance, what if you wanted to trade stocks, but in crypto? You might want to do this for reasons similar to why you might want to have dollars, but in crypto. You like the crypto system, the smart contracts, the permissionless innovation, the decentralized exchanges, frankly, the lack of regulation. But you also like stocks, which represent ownership in productive enterprises and are also a very popular tool for speculation. The crypto system doesn't talk all that well to the stocks system. Your broker is suspicious of crypto, and crypto is suspicious of your broker. Less and less so, but still. Putting the stocks on the blockchain lets you trade the things you want, stocks, the way you want, in crypto. Conceptually, one way to do this is that some fairly trustworthy institution buys a bunch of Tesla Inc. stock and holds it in its vault, and then it issues wrapped Tesla tokens on some blockchain. Each WTSLA token corresponds to one share of Tesla that the institution has in its vault, and you can trade them on the blockchain exactly as you would Ether. And in fact, this exists. FTX, a leading centralized crypto exchange, offers tokenized stocks on the Solana blockchain, though not to U.S. customers. Binance, another leading exchange, offered tokenized stocks for a while, but then stopped. If you're going to try this, you'll want to run it by your local securities regulator. It's legally sensitive to find new ways to sell people new, not-quite stocks. But if it works, it's interesting. For a crypto exchange, it's a way to keep your retail gamblers gambling on your platform. Someone who wants to bet on Bitcoin and Ether and Tesla stock can do all of it on one crypto exchange. 
More broadly, though, it's a way for the crypto financial system to ingest the traditional financial system. Have a financial asset? Put it in a box and issue tokens about it. Now it's a crypto asset. If the crypto financial system is good, if the computer programs, payment rails, and institutional structures of crypto have competitive advantages against the programs, rails, and structures of traditional finance, then some people will prefer to trade their stocks or bonds or other financial assets in the crypto system. 2. Algorithmic The fully-backed stablecoin model has problems. One is that you might not trust the issuer of a backed stablecoin. Another is that you might not want to trust any issuer. An issuer of a fully-backed stablecoin is by necessity using the U.S. dollar financial system. It's keeping the backing dollars in a bank or in other traditional finance dollar instruments. It might be subject to the regulatory pressures of that system. What you want is something that's worth a dollar but exists purely on the blockchain. Can that be done? 1. Good algorithmic. Sure, and with a fairly simple and traditional bit of financial engineering. It starts with leverage, or just borrowing money. Leverage is a way to amplify the risks and returns of betting on crypto. Instead of putting in $100 and buying $100 worth of Bitcoin, and making $10 if Bitcoin goes up 10%, I put in $100 and borrow $100 and buy $200 worth of Bitcoin and make $20 if Bitcoin goes up 10%. Or I lose $20 if Bitcoin goes down 10%. Or I lose everything if Bitcoin goes down 50%. For me, that's a high-risk, high-reward proposition. But what if I borrowed the money from you? What does that proposition look like for you? Well, if Bitcoin goes up 10%, you get back $100. I sell my Bitcoin for $220, give you back $100, and keep the rest. And likewise, if Bitcoin goes up 20%, you get back $100. I sell $240, give you back $100, and keep $140. If Bitcoin goes down 20%, you get back $100. I sell for $160, give you back $100, and keep $60. If Bitcoin goes down 49.5%, you get back $100. I sell for $101, give you back $100, and keep $1. Let's stop there, for no particular reason. At every point that I've named so far, you get back $100. You put in $100, and you get back $100, no matter what. For me, this trade is very risky. If Bitcoin fell 49.5%, I lost 99%. For you, this trade is very safe, very stable. What you have is a stable coin. You put in $100 and get back $100. This basic idea is called an algorithmic stable coin. You put in $100 and get back a thing that's worth $100, with that value guaranteed by a larger amount of a volatile cryptocurrency. I've described this as just a direct loan from you to me, a contract, but ordinarily this would be done as a smart contract, a computer program on a blockchain. Vitalik describes a rudimentary form of this in the original Ethereum white paper, calling it a hedging contract. Here's a slightly different example that involves no dollars at all. Say you and I each put 1,000 Ether into a smart contract, and that when we do it, 1,000 Ether is worth $1 million. On some preset maturity date, the contract will send you $1 million worth of Ether, and I will get whatever Ether is left. 
If Ether doubled in value in that time, that means you'll get 500 Ether worth $1 million, and I'll get 1,500 Ether worth $3 million. On the other hand, if Ether's dollar value fell 50%, you get all the Ether in the pool, so you get your $1 million back, and I get nothing. You get back $1 million no matter what. The smart contract, though, never held any dollars at all. There's no bank account, no treasury bills, no trusted central intermediary, but you have a claim with a steady value in U.S. dollars. We have, in a way, manufactured dollars purely out of crypto. A few points. First, I'm being far too cute here. In my original example, if the price of Bitcoin falls by 51%, my $200 worth of Bitcoin will be worth $98, and I won't have enough money to pay you back. Your supposed stablecoin is worth 98 cents. Can the price of Bitcoin fall by more than 50%? Oh yes, absolutely. It did that this year. It's not easy to manufacture stablecoins out of extremely unstable assets. Your algorithmic stablecoin has some risk of becoming unstable. But you can do a little better than the crude version I've proposed here. You could have margin calls, for instance, so that if Bitcoin falls by more than 20%, the smart contract sells the remaining Bitcoin to pay me back immediately. Actual algorithmic stablecoins, DAI, the stablecoin of MakerDAO, is a big one, work this way. Second, I am omitting interest. In the real world, if I'm borrowing $100 from you to buy Bitcoin, I'm not just paying you back $100. I'm paying you back with interest, $101 or whatever. An algorithmic stablecoin, much like a dollar in a bank account, can potentially generate interest. Third, note that there are two sides to this trade. Some people want stablecoins and will put money, or Ether, Bitcoin, etc., into this sort of smart contract to get stablecoins. Others want leverage and will borrow money from this sort of smart contract to take leveraged positions in risky crypto assets. There are different appetites for risk, so there's a trade to be done. Fourth, do you know what a bank is? Not in crypto, just in the world? Here's what a bank is. Some people want to borrow money to make investments. The main investments are, one, starting or expanding a business, and two, buying real estate. They borrow money from a bank, they get leverage. If their business does well or their house's price goes up, they pay back the money to the bank with interest. The bank has the senior claim on their business or house. If there isn't enough money for everyone, the bank gets paid first. Sometimes the bank loses money, but mostly it gets paid back on most of its loans. The bank, then, is just a pool of these loans, just a lot of senior claims on a lot of businesses and houses. These loans are called the bank's assets. Then the bank itself goes and borrows money. A bank with $10 billion of assets, $10 billion of mortgages and business loans, might have $1 billion of its shareholders' money, equity, or for a bank, capital, and borrow the other $9 billion. It borrows the $9 billion from its customers in the form of deposits. A bank deposit is, formally, a loan to the bank. If you deposit $100, the bank owes you that $100, and it uses that $100 to fund loans to businesses and home buyers. Wait, though. I said, way, way earlier, that a dollar is just an entry in the bank's database. When you have a dollar, what you have is an entry on the books of the bank. That deposit is the dollar. 
The deposit is the dollar, and yet it's also the debt of the bank. Your entry on the bank's database shows both that the bank owes you a dollar and is the dollar that you own. Isn't that incoherent? How can the bank owe you the dollar if you have it already right there in your account? Yes, that's what a dollar is. A dollar is debt. The modern banking system is a machine that takes in risky assets at one end, takes senior claims on them, lending money against those assets with the right to be paid back first, and repeats that move a few times, taking and issuing senior claims on the senior claims. In practice, this can be repeated many times. Banks would sometimes buy senior tranches of collateralized debt obligations made up of senior tranches of mortgage-backed securities made up of senior loans on houses. At the other end of all this, it spits out dollars. A dollar is distilled from risky assets. The stablecoin thing is nothing new. It's just banking, but banking in a particularly clear way, and in a largely unregulated way at the moment, and without deposit insurance, purified in smart contracts on the blockchain. 2. Bad Algorithmic to summarize the previous section, if you have a large quantity of risky tokens, you can, with a little financial engineering, issue a smaller quantity of claims on those tokens and call them stable coins. But recall also one of the simplest lessons of Bitcoin, which is that you can make up an arbitrary token that trades electronically and people might pay you money for it. Worth a shot, no? These two insights, you can make up a token and it will be worth money and you can use claims on risky tokens to make a stablecoin, can be combined in a natural way to create a disaster. Here's the disaster. 1. I make up a cryptocurrency. Call it ShareCoin. I list it on exchanges and try to sell it to people for some money. Maybe Bitcoin or Ether or dollars or Korean won. It doesn't matter. 2. I make up another cryptocurrency. Call it dollar coin. I set up a smart contract saying that one dollar coin can always be exchanged for one dollar's worth of share coin. I can do this because I just made up share coin, and the smart contract can issue any old amount of it. If share coin trades at $20, the smart contract will give you 0.05 share coins per dollar coin. If it trades at $0.001 dollar, the smart contract will give you 1,000 share coins. It doesn't care. It can make all the share coins it wants. 3. Conversely, if you want dollar coins, you buy $1 worth of share coins and deliver them to the smart contract to get back a dollar coin. 4. As long as there's some price for share coin, the smart contract can issue a dollar's worth of share coins for any dollar coin that someone brings to exchange. 5. See, a dollar coin should always be worth a dollar, I say, through the power of algorithms. The flaw in this logic is in step four. There's absolutely no reason for ShareCoin to be worth anything at all. I just made it up. And so no reason for a dollar coin to be worth a dollar. But of course, everything in crypto was made up by somebody in the recent past. So this objection is not as compelling as you might think. People might believe in this story or just in the general vibe of share coin and dollar coin. They might buy dollar coin and treat it as worth a dollar and buy share coin and treat it as a valuable component of a thriving ecosystem. At some point, the process reverses. 
people start to want dollars rather than dollar coins, so some of them sell dollar coins for dollars on the open market. This pushes the price of dollar coins slightly below one dollar, perhaps to 99 cents. Other people get nervous, so they go to the smart contract, which is supposed to keep the price of a dollar coin at one dollar, and trade dollar coins in for one dollar's worth of share coins. They sell those share coins, which pushes down the price of share coin, which makes more people nervous. They trade even more dollar coins for share coins and sell those. This pushes the price of share coin lower, which creates more nervousness, which leads to more redemptions at lower share coin prices and even more share coin supply flooding the market. This is a well-known phenomenon in traditional finance. It happens when companies issue debt and commit to paying it back with stock. And it has the technical name death spiral. It's as bad as it sounds. A couple of algorithmic stablecoins have death spiraled, the most famous one being TerraUSD. Terra was a blockchain ecosystem with a native currency, like our share coin, called Luna, and a stablecoin called TerraUSD. Billions of dollars of TerraUSD were issued, backed by algorithmic conversion into $1 worth of Luna. TerraUSD was popular because stablecoins are popular and also, to be fair, because you could get 20% interest rates on TerraUSD. The total amount of TerraUSD reached $18.5 billion. The market capitalization of Luna rose above $40 billion. The system all worked, and then it didn't. A quick death spiral hit in May, and Terra unraveled completely. By the end of the month, TerraUSD was trading below two cents. Zillions of Luna had been issued and were trading at essentially zero, and the whole Terra blockchain had burned to the ground. Terra's founder, Do Quan, colorful character, was tweeting in September that he wasn't on the run from South Korean authorities. Those authorities responded that he was obviously on the run. D. DeFi. The thing about centralized crypto exchanges is that they're centralized. Broadly speaking, you have to trust the people running the exchange to run it in a good way. Not to steal customer money, not to get hacked, not to take advantage of their knowledge of customer orders to trade ahead, not to blow up by allowing too much leverage, etc. Sometimes that trust is misplaced, and the exchange does steal the money. Sometimes the exchange is honest, careful, and well-regulated by the responsible national authorities, but still, you're in crypto. You want to avoid trusting centralized intermediaries and national regulation. Also, you're in crypto. You want smart contracts. A financial products exchange can be thought of as a computer program. Most stock exchanges long ago got rid of trading floors with human traders and are now just computer servers matching electronic buy and sell orders. Certainly every crypto exchange works like that. A centralized crypto exchange is fully electronic. It has computers that keep ledgers of customer assets and run the programs matching orders and moving assets between customers. The blockchain is already designed to keep a ledger of customer assets, so why keep your assets on an exchange's ledger? And you can run computer programs on Ethereum or most other modern blockchains. Why not run the exchange programs there? A venue for trading tokens that isn't a company, but is instead a set of smart contracts on a blockchain, is called a decentralized exchange, or DEX. 
And the broader idea of having a financial system with lending and derivatives and everything else that runs as smart contracts on a blockchain is called decentralized finance, or DeFi. A few more points of terminology. Decentralized finance is DeFi, so centralized finance, meaning specifically the bits of crypto that use centralized trusted intermediaries, mainly exchanges and lenders, is CeFi. And I will sometimes refer to DeFi things as protocols. A protocol is a set of smart contracts, the computer programs that run on the blockchain and do stuff, or at least a set of rules for creating them. A decentralized exchange isn't an exchange in the traditional sense. It certainly isn't a building in New York where traders meet in person to shout orders at each other. And it also isn't a data center in New Jersey where an exchange company keeps its computer servers to match orders with each other. It's a protocol, a set of smart contracts that let people move cryptocurrencies around. There might be a company involved, and surely someone is making money somewhere. But even if the company goes away, the smart contracts will keep running as long as the blockchain does. One, some background on exchanges and market makers. One. CLOB. Here's what an exchange is. People send it orders. Buy 100 shares at $100. Sell 100 shares at $102, etc. The exchange is, at its heart, a system for matching those orders, finding a buyer for each seller, and vice versa. The orders come in at different times. When the exchange gets an order to buy 100 shares at $100, it puts the order on its order book just an electronic list of orders that haven't been executed yet. When it gets its next order to sell 100 shares for $102, it looks at its order book to see if there are any orders to buy 100 shares at $102. Nope, not yet. The $100 buyer doesn't want to pay $102, and the $102 seller doesn't want to accept $100. It puts the sell order on the order book, too. The $100 buy order and the $102 sell order rest on the order book. Then another order comes in to buy 100 shares at $102. The exchange sees in the order book that, aha, yes, there's an order to sell 100 shares at $102. So the matching engine matches the $102 buy and the $102 sell order. They pair off with each other and do their trade. And then the orders are removed from the order book. They've been filled and the exchange waits for the next order. In general, a centralized exchange will have lots of orders resting on its order book at any time. All the resting buy orders will have lower prices than all the resting sell orders. If a buy order has a higher price than a resting sell order, those two orders will pair off and execute with each other. If I want to pay $103 and you'll accept $102, the exchange has found a mutually beneficial trade. And this way of running an exchange is usually called a Central Limit Order Book, or CLOB. You could certainly build a smart contract to do this on the blockchain. The contract would take orders, keep them on a Central Limit Order Book, and execute them against each other. And smart contracts like this do exist. But most DEXs don't work this way. 2. Market Makers You may ask, where do all these resting orders come from? Who's going around thinking up these specific prices they want to pay for a stock or prices they want to sell for? Ordinary people might not bother with this. 
If they think a stock is a good investment, they will often send in market orders, just buy from whoever's selling at whatever the best price is. Resting orders come mainly from professional investors called market makers, who help make fast and efficient trading possible. Their job is to sell stock or crypto or whatever to people who want to buy, and buy from people who want to sell and collect the spread, the difference between their bid or buying price and their offer or selling price. If you send a market order to buy, you buy immediately, but you pay a bit of money, the spread, to the market maker for that service. The market maker, meanwhile, is in the business of providing that service and collecting that spread. It's not really betting that prices will go up or down. In modern stock and crypto markets, market makers are also largely computer programs, and their programs are pretty simple. This is oversimplified, but not by that much. One, post a bid and an offer for a stock. Two, if someone sells you stock at your bid price, lower your bid and offer slightly. If someone immediately hits your bid, then you might worry that your bid was actually too high and you could have paid less. Anyway, now you own some stock and want to get rid of it, so you might as well put it on sale. Three, if someone buys stock from you at your offer price, raise your bid and offer slightly for similar reasons. Four, keep doing this. The system is self-correcting. The more stock people want to sell you, the less you pay them for it. The more they want to buy from you, the more you charge them. Hopefully it all balances out and you end up flat. You sell all the stock you bought and buy all the stock you sold. And you collect the spread along the way. 5. Also, you're probably keeping an eye on general market conditions and raising and lowering your bids and offers based on what's happening in other markets. Market makers in U.S. stocks are often called high-frequency traders, or sometimes even flash boys, and part of what that means is that they're constantly changing the prices of their orders as their information changes. And the result is that when you want to buy a share of stock, you can send in a market order and you will quickly trade with a market maker at a price that's pretty much the market price, one that's updated continuously to reflect supply and demand and all available information. 3. Nope. This doesn't work on the blockchain. The problem with the blockchain is that it's a slow computer. Ethereum runs computer programs by sending them to thousands of nodes to confirm transactions, and that takes time. You wouldn't want to run a self-driving car on the Ethereum virtual machine. It turns out you wouldn't want to run a high-frequency trading platform there either. Centralized exchanges, in traditional finance and in crypto, have lots of very fast computers with very fast connections that allow market makers to constantly update their prices in response to trades and new information. Traders build fancy fiber optic lines to get their orders to the exchange a few milliseconds faster than the competition. Speed matters, and they update their orders many times a second. This is harder when the computers are on the blockchain. It's also more expensive. Every action in Ethereum requires gas fees, and sending a message to a smart contract saying, cancel my buy order at $100.001 and put in a new order at $100.002 would use Ethereum's computer power and cost gas. It turns out this is nearly fatal for CLOB market making in Ethereum. Market making is very expensive, Vitalik Buterin wrote, as creating an order and removing an order both take gas fees even if the orders are never finalized. 2. 
automated market makers. 1. Mechanics So Vitalik proposed a different idea. Here it is. The mechanism would be a smart contract that holds A tokens of type T1 and B tokens of type T2 and maintains the invariant that A times B equals K for some constant K. In the version where people can invest, K can change, but only during investment withdrawal transactions, not trades. Anyone can buy or sell by selecting a new point on the XY equals K curve and supplying the missing A tokens and in exchange receiving the extra B tokens, or vice versa. The marginal price is simply the implicit derivative of the curve XY equals K or Y slash X. That's just a comment that he wrote on Reddit. Later, a whole business model grew out of it. Here's the simplified version. I decide to be a market maker in some token pair, say Ethereum and USDC, a dollar-denominated stablecoin. Let's say one Ether currently trades for 1600 USDC, $1,600. I set up a smart contract. Again, that's a computer program on the blockchain, but in this case it might be easier to think of it as a pot of money managed by the computer program. I can deposit both Ether and USDC into this pot. Anyone who wants to buy Ether with USDC or sell Ether for USDC can come to my smart contract and make that trade with it, and the contract will adjust its prices to reflect supply and demand. But it will do it in an absurdly simple manner that doesn't require much in the way of computation or updating prices. It will just try to keep one number constant. When I set up the contract, I deposited equal values of Ether and USDC. If one Ether was worth 1,600 USDC, I put in 100 Ether and 160,000 USDC, each set of tokens worth $160,000. The program multiplies those two numbers. 100 times 160,000 is 16 million. And then it will just hold that product constant. That is, the number of Ether multiplied by the number of USDC will always be 16 million. A trader will try to buy, say, 10 Ether. That would leave 90 Ether in the fund. 16 million divided by 90 is 177,777.78. The pot has 160,000 USDC now, so it will need 17,777.78 more USDC to keep the product constant. That's what my smart contract charges. The trader has to pay me 17,777.78 USDC, 1,777.778 USDC per Ether, to do this trade. Someone wants to buy Ether from my smart contract, so my smart contract automatically raises its price for Ether. But it doesn't have to go around constantly updating prices and posting new prices on central limit order books. It just advertises its constant product, and that updates prices on its own. It's a kind of automated market maker, or AMM. That's cool. I don't know. It's cool. This isn't a thing that really exists in traditional finance. It was developed almost by accident as a workaround to a novel problem, that the computers are too expensive in decentralized finance. You might be asking, wait, how do I know the price charged by the smart contract is correct? Is the computer program ever checking Ether's price quoted on, say, Coinbase, to make sure its price makes sense? No. 
insofar as demand for ether by people interacting with the contract reflects demand for ether in the rest of the world, then the price created by the contract is the price. Sometimes different smart contracts and different centralized exchanges could have different prices for ether, but if they get too out of whack, people can try to buy ether where it's cheap and sell it where it's expensive for a quick profit and close that gap. 2. LPs In my description above, I assume that I want to be a market maker in some currency pair, so I set up a smart contract to do it on my own. In reality, the way DEXs normally work is that AMM smart contracts pool liquidity. If you want to be a market maker in stocks, it helps to be a large financial institution. In crypto, anyone who wants to be a market maker in a pair of tokens can contribute that pair to a liquidity pool and get back liquidity tokens representing their stake in that pool. They're called liquidity providers. They collect fees in crypto for providing liquidity in the pool. There's a risk, though. In general, if you provide liquidity in an asset, in DeFi or centralized finance, in crypto or otherwise, and the asset price steadily goes down, you'll find yourself buying more and more of it, and it will be worth less and less. In an AMM liquidity pool, if the price of one token keeps going up against the other token, the pool will have more and more of the token worth less and less. This is a risk that all market makers take. In traditional finance, it's sometimes called adverse selection. In DeFi, though, it delights in the name impermanent loss. I don't know why, but I love it. There's nothing particularly impermanent about it, unless the price bounces back, of course. But that's what it's called. Crypto is so optimistic. How can you not be charmed? 3. Lending Exchanges providing liquidity between different tokens are a key function of DeFi, but there are others. One important function is lending. 1. Secured Most DeFi lending is what you would call in traditional finance margin lending. You have a volatile asset, Ether, say, and you want to borrow some money, a dollar like USDC stablecoin, say, using that volatile asset as collateral. Perhaps you're borrowing that money to buy more volatile assets, or perhaps you're borrowing against your ether to buy a sandwich or a house without selling your ether. If you went to a broker for a margin loan against $100 of stock, the broker might lend you $50. It's over-collateralized because the stock is worth more than the loan, which makes the broker feel safe. If the stock then fell to $70, the broker might send you a margin call. Pay down $15 of this loan or I'll liquidate your stock. That way, it's less likely the broker will end up holding the bag for your loss if the stock keeps falling. If you failed to meet the margin call, the broker would sell your stock clear, say $65 for it, keep enough money to repay the loan, and give you what's left. This is pretty straightforward to automate with smart contracts. There are robust DeFi lending systems, such as Compound. Lenders put up tokens and earn interest. Borrowers borrow tokens, over-collateralized by other tokens, and pay interest. And automatic liquidation provisions make sure that if the value of the collateral goes down, it's sold to pay back the loans. 2. Unsecured What's much harder in DeFi are the main businesses of traditional finance. Unsecured lending, and lending secured by physical assets, such as houses. DeFi is good at lending crypto secured by crypto. The collateral lives on the blockchain, 
the loan lives on the blockchain. They're connected by smart contracts on the blockchain. It's all pretty neat. But this sort of lending crypto against crypto doesn't do much. It's mostly useful for crypto speculation. You lend Ether, get USDC, and use it to buy even more Ether. By contrast, a mortgage lets you buy a house and then pay for it with your future income. An unsecured business loan helps you build a business and then pay off the loan with the business's future earnings. Finance, at its heart, is about moving future wealth into the present by borrowing or moving present wealth into the future by saving. There are deep philosophical reasons that crypto is bad at this. An unsecured loan is essentially about trust. It's about the lender trusting that she'll be repaid not out of a pool of collateral, but out of the borrower's future income. She has to trust that the borrower will have future income and that he will pay. Relatedly, an unsecured loan requires identity. You need to know who's borrowing the money, what their payment history looks like, what their income is. The default approach in much of crypto is pseudonymity. Anyone can set up any number of crypto wallets or Bitcoin account numbers, and they're generally not tied to a name. If you borrow money against crypto collateral, all your lender needs to know is that the collateral is on the blockchain. If you borrow money against your future income, your lender needs to know who you are. That said, there's nothing in principle to prevent unsecured lending in DeFi, and there are projects such as Goldfinch that do it. You get together a smart contract where people deposit money in exchange for tokens and a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization that controls the money. The tokens give them a share in the DAO's profits and the right to vote on who gets the money. People propose potential borrowers, token holders consider them and vote, and if the holders vote yes, then they make a loan. As with any DAO, the token holders can get together in a chat room and consider off-chain information if they want. They could make the borrower send in a driver's license and two bank statements. You can build some incentive mechanism to punish members for proposing borrowers who default and reward them for proposing good borrowers. Decentralized finance is made up of smart contracts, but it's also made up of people, and if they want to do unsecured lending, they can. We've talked about Web3 as a source of online reputation, about soul-bound tokens that could be used to verify a person's actions, connections, and characteristics. A soul, in this terminology, is something close to a credit report. It's a list of stuff that a person has done that should make you trust them, a decentralized and blockchained source of reputation information. The right assortment of degrees and endorsements might make you feel good enough about a person, or rather a soul, an address on the blockchain, that you give them an unsecured loan. And then I suppose if they default, you can take their soul. 4. Tokenomics of DeFi The basic mechanism of DeFi is that you put some tokens up in a smart contract to generate fees or interest. You put your tokens in an automated market-making contract to get liquidity provider fees. You put your tokens in a lending protocol to get interest, etc. Generally, this is referred to as locking your tokens. Because they're being used for lending or whatever, you can't get them back for some period. And people often talk about DeFi protocols in terms of their TVL, or total value locked. Mechanically, the way this generally works is that you send your tokens to the smart contract, and it sends you back other tokens that are, basically, receipts for the tokens you locked up. 
Instead of having Ether or USDC, you have liquidity provider tokens saying you've put some Ether and USDC into a smart contract. What do you do with those liquidity provider tokens? Well, in theory, you hold them until you want your locked tokens back, and then you hand them in and get back the underlying tokens. The liquidity provider tokens are just a receipt. But at some point, people realized that those tokens represent something of value. We can do something with them. If you have a token representing a receipt on some Ether that you've locked into a smart contract, then that's almost as good as having some Ether, and someone might give you some money for it. Now you can borrow against those receipt tokens in DeFi too. Everything is like this. In proof-of-stake Ethereum, you can stake Ether to earn staking rewards. A protocol called Lido runs a big staking pool. If you stake your Ether with Lido, it will give you back a token called STETH, basically a receipt for your staked Ether. The Ether that you staked with Lido will earn staking rewards, while the STETH that you get back can be sold or invested in other DeFi protocols to earn more money. More broadly, the business of DeFi is about reusing tokens as much as possible. You have some tokens, you lock them up in a smart contract that does a thing and pays you a return, the smart contract gives you some sort of receipt token, and you turn around and lock up those receipt tokens in another smart contract that does another thing and pays you some more. People talk about yield farming, the process of bouncing between DeFi protocols to try to earn the maximum yield, reusing tokens and getting paid in protocol's own tokens to make as much money as possible. This can create a self-reinforcing cycle, by which I kind of mean a Ponzi. It goes like this. 1. There's a protocol that does some stuff with Ether or stablecoins or whatever. 2. If you put your Ether or stablecoins or whatever into the protocol, for lending or liquidity provision or whatever, it will give you some of its own tokens. This is no problem. It can print those tokens for free. 3. If you put those tokens back into the protocol, locking them up rather than selling them, it will give you even more of those tokens. It'll pay you 10% interest every hour, if you want. Who cares? The tokens are free. 4. Buy this token. It pays 10% interest every hour, the promoters of the protocol can say, more or less accurately. They can quote an APY, an annual percentage yield, a normal finance concept that's much beloved in DeFi yield farming, with an enormous number of digits, and people will get very excited. 5. So they'll buy the token, and it will go up. Or they'll put their Ether or stablecoins into the protocol to earn its tokens, and the protocol's total value locked will go up. 6. Look at this protocol. Its TVL is huge and rising. Its token has doubled in price this week, people will say, and they'll buy more of it. 7. People keep getting paid comical interest rates in the token, which is fine as long as the token price keeps going up, or stays flat, or goes down at a slower rate than the interest rate. Even though the market is being flooded with tokens, people still seem to be making money and will do so as long as new money comes in. 8. The amount of tokens issued rises inexorably toward infinity. The amount of new money coming in does not, and tragedy ensues. The greatest of these protocols is probably Olympus Dow, which is run by a pseudonymous founder called Zeus. Colorful character! has a group of loyal investors called OMIs, and at its peak offered yields of 7,000% to 
and was worth $3 billion, according to a Coindesk article titled, Olympus Dow Might Be the Future of Money or It Might Be a Ponzi. Since then, it's lost about 99% of its value, so there's your answer. Olympus Dow also sparked an even funnier copycat called Wonderland on the Avalanche blockchain, which offered yields of more than 80,000% and was partly run by a pseudonymous person who, it turned out, also co-founded Quadriga. Colorful character! Last year, I needed physical therapy for my knee, and I ended up bonding with my therapist by talking about crypto. He was heavily invested in Wonderland, which he cheerfully described as a Ponzi, but one that was making him a lot of money. Olympus became particularly famous for the 3-3 meme, based on the notation of game theory. The idea is that the payoff in a two-player game can be written as X-Y, where X is what I get and Y is what you get. These outcomes could be dollars, but often they're written as abstract utility numbers. A payoff of 3-3 is better for both of us than a payoff of 2-1, without worrying too much about what those numbers mean. Olympus's pitch was that if everybody buys Ohm and locks it up, then everybody's payoff will be good, i.e. 3-3, while if everybody does bad things like sell their Ohm, then everybody's payoff will be negative 3, negative 3. Those numbers are abstract and unitless, and actually the payoff was negative 99%, negative 99%. This, of course, exactly describes any Ponzi. As long as people keep investing new money and not withdrawing it, everyone will get richer, on paper, but it will unravel when people start taking their money out. Olympus always struck me as charmingly forthright about what it was up to. It's the future of money, because as long as everyone keeps buying, it will keep going up. People have tried that one before. 5. Some Arbitrages In traditional finance, people devote their careers to finding arbitrages, circumstances in which they can buy something at a low price and instantly sell the same thing at a high price. This is hard to do, because traditional finance is very competitive and people aren't regularly leaving $20 bills on the sidewalk. Even if you think you've spotted an arbitrage, the same thing trading at different prices in different places, you have to worry about some legal or operational reason that you can't actually move between those places. Maybe there's a 5% tax to move the stock offshore. Maybe short selling isn't allowed, etc. Most of what people call arbitrage in traditional finance is buying one thing at a low price, simultaneously selling a slightly different thing at a higher price, and hoping they turn out to be the same thing. Or buying one thing at a low price, selling the same thing a bit later, and hoping it turns out to be at a higher price. Meanwhile, decentralized finance is new enough that pricing anomalies exist, but efficient enough that everything happens visibly on a virtual computer running public code so you can reliably exploit them. There are magical possibilities. 1. Flash Loans Let's say you're a smart young person and you discover an arbitrage. Stock XYZ is trading at $10 on Exchange A and $11 on Exchange B. You can buy it on Exchange A for $10 and sell it on Exchange B for $11, making an easy $1 profit. That's fine. Now you have $1 but you want to buy 10 million shares on Exchange A for $100 million and sell 10 million on Exchange B for $110 million, then you'd have $10 million, which is much more worth doing. 
The only problem with this plan is, while you're a smart young person, you don't have $100 million. Why would you? In financial theory, the solution is simple. You borrow the $100 million at the market rate of interest, buy the stock, sell it, pay back a little interest, and keep your profits. In practice, no one is going to lend you $100 million. I mean, if you really have found a perfect arbitrage, maybe you'll be able to raise $100 million. You can work your connections, cold call some hedge funds, maybe get some meetings where you present your strategy and say, see, it's a perfect arbitrage. I just need $100 million. Are you in? And they'll just do the strategy and leave you out. Maybe they'll pay you a small finder's fee. Or you could start small. Do your arbitrage for $1,000, make $100, do it again for $1,100, etc., until you have a huge bankroll. But that's not great either. The longer it takes you, the more likely it is that the clever arbitrage you've spotted will go away. In particular, the more you do the trade, the more likely someone else is to notice and do it in a big size and make the arbitrage go away. In crypto finance, the situation is different. If, say, you spot Ether trading at two different prices on two different decentralized exchanges, you can just write a program that does the following. One, borrows $100 million from some decentralized lending protocol, such as Aave. Two, uses the $100 million to buy a token on decentralized exchange A. Three, sells the token on decentralized exchange B for $110 million. Four, returns the $100 million to the lending protocol, plus a small fee. 5. Sends the leftover $10 million to you. 6. All in the same transaction that executes all at once. The lender in Step 1 can make the return in Step 4 a condition of the loan. The loan and the payback occur simultaneously in the same computer program executing in the same block of the blockchain. As far as the lending protocol is concerned, there's no credit risk. If any of the intermediate steps fail, if it turns out you're wrong about the arbitrage and you can't sell the token for more than you paid for it, etc., then the whole thing never happens and the loan isn't made. The lending protocol isn't evaluating your creditworthiness, your resume, or your track record as an investor. It's just making sure that the code works. This is clever and neat and feels like a good way to build a financial system. It's an egalitarian, decentralized, permissionless, computerized way for anyone who spots an arbitrage to be able to exploit and close it. It should make markets more efficient and prices more accurate. The problem is, in crypto, an arbitrage often means a mistake in a smart contract. Of course, this is true in traditional finance, too. Somebody notices a flaw in a loan agreement or credit default swap contract, buys up a bunch of the bond or CDS, then goes to court to try to extract money from the person who wrote the contract wrong. This, however, is a lengthy and risky process, and one of the main risks is that the court will say, oh, come on, that's not what they meant, get out of here. Whereas a smart contract will never say that. Somebody writes some contract that has some bug that occasionally lets a user put in one token and get back two. Then somebody notices and writes a program to use flash loans to put in 1 billion tokens and get back 2 billion tokens and blow up the smart contract entirely. People sometimes leave money lying around in crypto, and crypto has built very efficient ways for other people to take their money. It's not clear that that is a good way to build a financial system. 2. MEV It gets stranger. 
Let's say you notice that a token is trading at $10 on Decentralized Exchange A and $11 on Decentralized Exchange B. So you send an order to Exchange A to buy 1,000 tokens for $10,000 and a simultaneous order to sell 1,000 tokens for $11,000. What happens to those orders? In the U.S. stock market, whole books have been written about that question. People get really mad about it. Your order goes to your broker, who routes it to different exchanges at different times through different pipes. High-frequency electronic traders who see your order execute on one exchange might race ahead to another exchange to push up the prices. There are controversies about co-location, where the high-frequency traders pay fees to the stock exchanges to keep their computers in the same room as the exchange's computers so they can get a tiny speed advantage by connecting to the exchange through a fairly short wire. In crypto, the answer is different. It's easiest to understand if you start with how trades worked on Ethereum before the switch to proof-of-stake. When you made a trade, your transaction would be broadcast out to the entire network and included in the list of transactions that miners were working on executing but that hadn't yet made it into a block. When a block was finalized, miners would include your transaction in the block, but the miners decided which transactions got included in a block and in what order, and they also earned gas fees for executing transactions. Users could specify how much they wanted to pay for gas, and transactions with higher gas fees were usually prioritized. This created a trade. 1. You find an arbitrage and send some orders to decentralized exchanges to do that arbitrage. 2. I see those orders on the network and think, hey, that's a good trade. 3. I send the same orders to the exchanges to do the same transaction. 4. I pay a higher gas fee to get priority over you so that I can do the trade ahead of you. 5. By the time you get to do the trade, it's no longer available. I bought everything available at the good price. Ha ha. This is usually called MEV, which originally stood for Minor Extractable Value, because one winner in this scenario was the miner who got to charge higher gas prices to people who wanted to front-run trades or avoid getting front-run. It's the subject of a 2019 paper by Philip Dion et al. titled Flash Boys 2.0, a reference to the high-frequency traders in U.S. stock markets who purportedly race ahead of other traders' orders to extract value from them. Rather than solve this concern about traditional markets, crypto made it explicit. Time priority was subject to an explicit gas auction, where whoever paid the most to the transaction orderers got to go first. Sure, yes, in crypto, you could get front-run all the time by more sophisticated electronic traders, but in a transparent and decentralized way. As Ethereum moved to proof-of-stake, MEV was rebranded Maximal Extractable Value. There's still money to be squeezed from traders by the people maintaining the network, but the mechanics have changed. In today's Ethereum, there's a division of labor between block builders, who compile and order transactions, and validators, the replacement for miners, who do the proof-of-stake work to make blocks official. And if you're doing arbitrages, you can send your transactions privately to block builders. You can still pay for speed and priority, but you can't see everyone else's trades to front-run them. E. Reinventing 2008 in 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto invented Bitcoin. One thing that seems to have motivated him was a distrust of banks and financial intermediaries. 
This was understandable because it was 2008. The modern banking system was at a low ebb. Banks had taken risks that few people understood and ended up losing tons of money on supposedly safe investments. High levels of leverage in the banking system and in the more opaque and less regulated shadow banking system made those systems fragile. A bank that borrowed $30 for every $1 of shareholders' equity would go bust if the value of its assets fell 4%. The high leverage and lack of transparency caused contagion. An asset's price would fall, the highly leveraged banks and funds that held it would get margin calls, and they'd have to sell whatever they had on hand. That would cause more prices to fall, which would lead to more margin calls, which would bankrupt some of the banks and funds, which would lead to more fire sales and more price drops. Meanwhile, the lenders to those banks and funds, who thought their money was safe, would have losses. Many were also highly leveraged and might go bust. All of this was opaque enough that even banks and funds that hadn't taken big risks or lost a lot of money were treated with suspicion by lenders, which could cause them to fail too. Ultimately, the banking system was bailed out by massive infusions of money from central banks. All of this was gross. Satoshi didn't like it, and he built a new payment mechanism that escaped the need to trust banks. It was irreversible and decentralized. Everyone was responsible for their own mistakes. No one could be bailed out by central banks printing money. It was transparent. Every transaction was recorded on the blockchain. There were no hidden chains of leverage. In a deep sense, it wasn't built on debt at all. To some Bitcoiners, the central sin of the banking system is that every bank deposit is a liability. It's a debt, payable on demand, from the bank to its depositors. And so every dollar that you keep in the bank necessarily adds to the leverage of the system. This complaint is not limited to Bitcoiners. After the 2008 crisis, there was a lot of interest in the Chicago plan of narrow banking, where every bank deposit would be backed 100% by real dollars, reserves at the Federal Reserve, and lending financed out of equity. But in today's world, dollars are debt. Meanwhile, Bitcoin are not debt. They're just Bitcoin. They exist in themselves, on the blockchain, rather than being liabilities of banks. In early 2009, when Satoshi mined Bitcoin's Genesis block, this message resonated with a lot of people. A new financial system with transparent and irreversible transactions, with no special power for governments or big banks, had an appeal. Over time, though, there was another, much more obvious appeal to Bitcoin. Its price kept going up. If you bought a Bitcoin for $100, you could soon sell it for $1,000. This got a lot of people very interested in crypto, not for philosophical or monetary structure reasons, but because getting rich is nice. Many of these people came from traditional finance because they saw that crypto finance was fun, it was wide open, it allowed for permissionless innovation, and everyone was getting rich. These people, the people who left TradFi for crypto because the money was better, didn't necessarily have strong philosophical commitments to all that Satoshi stuff. They weren't like, leverage is bad, banks are evil, monetary soundness is what matters. Some came from banks. They were there to make money. One way to make money is by finding good trades, finding cheap ways to borrow money, and then borrowing as much as possible to put into those trades. 
And so somehow, crypto had itself a 2008. In 2022, the crypto financial system rediscovered what the traditional system had discovered in 2008. It was honestly kind of impressive. 1. Terra In May 2022, you'll recall, the algorithmic stablecoin TerraUSD collapsed. If you had money in Terra Luna, odds are that you lost roughly all of it. Many of the people who lost money were regular retail savers who'd been suckered by TerraUSD's promises of stability and of a safe 20% interest rate, or regular retail cryptocurrency investors who speculated on Luna and lost. But not all of them. One victim of the Terra collapse was a hedge fund called Three Arrows Capital, run by two former Credit Suisse Group currency traders. Colorful characters and also former TradFi guys. Speaking from an undisclosed location in July, 3AC's founders explained to Bloomberg News that what they'd failed to realize was that Luna was capable of falling to effective zero in a matter of days, and that this would catalyze a credit squeeze across the industry that would put significant pressure on all of our illiquid positions. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve was raising rates, and speculative assets generally were losing value. It turns out that crypto is basically a speculative asset, and that it's not particularly a hedge for stock market volatility. Everything in crypto went down. Bitcoin was worth more than $67,000 at the peak in October 2021. It fell below $20,000 in June 2022. Ether went from $4,800 to less than $1,000. The total market value of all cryptocurrencies fell from about $3 trillion in late 2021 to about $1 trillion in June 2022. Two-thirds of all crypto wealth just vanished. That's just a very traditional story, isn't it? Leveraged hedge funds piled into crowded trades that seemed, on the basis of a fairly short series of historical data, to be safe. This made the trades unsafe, so the hedge funds lost money. So their lenders sent them margin calls. So they were forced to sell off other, better assets. Assets that were more liquid and could be sold to meet the margin calls. Which made those better assets bad, too. In a crisis, correlations go to one, traders say. Losses on bad trades force leveraged hedge funds to sell good assets, and so everything goes down at once. 2. Contagion 3AC was a leveraged hedge fund. When it blew up, the people who loaned it money didn't get their money back. 3AC went into a complicated cross-border insolvency process that will presumably eventually recover some money for its creditors, but they'll lose at least some of their money, and it will take a while to get back the rest. Who are these creditors? Well, a little of everyone, really. Documents filed in 3AC's insolvency process reveal that the hedge fund was borrowing from DeFi platforms, but also from an assortment of big-name centralized or CeFi crypto lenders, borrowing platforms, and exchanges. The DeFi platforms mostly did fine. They had collateral, they had automatic liquidation mechanisms, they liquidated the collateral, and they got their money back. The centralized lenders did less well. It turns out a lot were less strict about demanding collateral than you might have wanted. 3AC was one of the biggest and best-known hedge funds in crypto. 
working with 3AC was a stamp of approval for many lending platforms. It was prestigious to say, our customers include Three Arrows. Also, 3AC was viewed as a smart fund, doing clever low-volatility arbitrage trades with good risk management rather than taking wild gambles. So if 3AC came to a lending platform and said, hey, we'd like to borrow $500 million unsecured, the platform might say yes. Oh boy, did they. Voyager Digital, a crypto brokerage that let customers buy, sell, borrow, and lend crypto, is a public company listed in Canada. It had $2.3 billion of assets at the end of June, about $650 million of which was unsecured loans of USDC and Bitcoin to 3AC. Oops, it went bankrupt too. Celsius Network is the same basic idea, but worse. It offered customers willing to lend out their crypto up to 18% interest on deposits, with pretty vague descriptions on how it earned that yield. CEO Alex Mashinsky, colorful character, once explained to Bloomberg Businessweek that it's ridiculous that banks take deposits, use them to make loans, and then don't pay 18% interest. Somebody is lying, Mashinsky said. Either the bank is lying or Celsius is lying. Only one possible answer. Celsius had also loaned 3AC money, though that was the least of its problems, and it was in some of the same trades as 3AC, which blew up when 3AC did. It also went bankrupt. The leverage of these platforms is pretty astonishing. Celsius was levered about 19 to 1. It had almost $95 of debt, mostly customer deposits, and about $5 of equity for every $100 of assets. Voyager was levered 23 to 1. A fairly small loss could wipe it out entirely, and did. That some banks were levered 30 to 1 going into the 2008 financial crisis became a matter of intense scandal, and post-crisis reforms require much higher capital levels for banks. Also, banks mostly invest in mortgages and stuff. These guys were investing in crypto loans, hugely volatile stuff with nothing in the way of long-term through-the-cycle history, and they were doing it with 5% capital ratios. 3. Non-contagion In many ways, this looks like 2008, but it's striking how little effect the loss of $2 trillion of crypto wealth had on anything else. The 2008 crisis in the banking and shadow banking system led to a global recession, a foreclosure crisis, and real political instability. The 2022 crisis in crypto seems to have been pretty walled off from real-world effects. Two trillion dollars of market capitalization were lost without much of a visible impact outside crypto. Why? Part of the answer is about who lost money and how they thought of the money they lost. A lot of people who put money into crypto were using their gambling money. And when their bets didn't pay off, they thought, ah, well, that was fun. Too bad. Almost everything about the world of crypto screams high risk to anyone who knows at all what to look out for. And so, if you do know what to look for, you take your crypto risks with money that you can afford to lose and in ways that account for the risks. You don't take your life savings, lever them up 10 to 1, and invest everything in Dogecoin. The great lesson of 2008 is that the real systemic risk is in the safest assets. The problem isn't banks and investors buying insane, risky securities that promise 50% returns and then go to zero. 
The problem is banks and investors buying AAA-rated bonds that promise an extra 0.03% of yield and borrowing 95% of the money they use to buy those bonds, then finding out those securities shouldn't have been rated AAA. People invest money they can't afford to lose, and often money they borrowed, in safe assets. And when those assets lose money, the system breaks. By 2022, the crypto financial system was working on creating safe assets. That's what Celsius and Voyager and TerraUSD promised, safe and stable ways to earn high returns without a lot of volatility, but in crypto. Some people were taken in by those promises and invested their life savings. Some hedge funds bet on those promises and levered up those bets. But mostly, look, the guy who promises 18% yields and says either the bank is lying or Celsius is lying isn't going to persuade that many people to entrust him with their life savings. Part of the answer, though, is about the traditional financial system. Traditional big financial companies have been dipping their toe into crypto, but for the most part, the traditional and crypto financial systems have stayed pretty separate. You don't hear a lot about banks keeping 20% of their assets in Bitcoin. And in fact, banking regulators have been rather stern about letting banks own crypto. So when crypto prices collapsed, banks and other financial institutions weren't particularly harmed. This matters a lot. If you want to buy a house or open a store, you go to a bank for a loan. When banks are in crisis, as they were in 2008, they will be less likely to lend you money. So you won't buy a house or open a store. There will be less credit, less economic activity, less growth in the real economy. Governments bailed out banks in 2008 not because they love bankers, but because banks matter for the rest of the economy. The crypto financial system is very fun and cool and has invented a lot of interesting stuff. But it's mostly not where people go to get money to buy a house or open a store. Bitcoin and Ethereum and DeFi could all vanish tomorrow without a trace. And most businesses that make stuff in the physical world would be just fine.